All right. Good evening, everyone. I'm glad to be here for this final service, and I'm glad you're here. Let me ask you to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. <coughs> 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> I think I can speak for all of the missionaries uh, when I express our thanks for the privilege to be here and be part of your missions conference. It has been a joy and a delight to get to know so many of you. And uh, I've met a lot of you and had a chance to, uh, to sit at the table and talk with some of you. And um, we've enjoyed that, that element. You know, actually, we came, on a, came in on Wednesday and, and you fed us. And then we came to church and then we came in on Thursday and you fed us and we came to church. We came in on Friday and you fed us and we came to church. And uh, you fed us on Saturday and uh, you fed us this afternoon. And we're leaving tomorrow because we're fed up. <laughs> Really, <clears throat> uh, and that's the truth. Brother uh, Ward in Sunday school this morning expressed it as we've been growing in the Lord since we got here. <laughs> I like that. I like that one too. <clears throat> you know the um, the or- orchestra just sounds great here. You know that. I love what it adds to the music. Um, everyone's done such a great job with all of that. There's this one guy sitting right in this chair back here. I don't know where he is right now, but the guy with the trombone. In every service, he blew it. He just, he just blew it. <clears throat> I have a ministry of encouragement. I'm trying to help people. And just trying to encourage people. I was trying to encourage my wife a while back, and, you know, we were talking about some things from the past, and I said, honey, you know, there's lots of things we would like to go back and do over, but we just have to learn to embrace our mistakes and move forward. <clears throat> so she gave me a hug. <laughs> that one kind of rolled back through the crowd. It took a moment. <laughs> well, this morning we focused on the uh, passions of a mission-focused church. And we're going to kind of bring that down to us tonight individually and talk about the pattern of a mission-focused life. And there will be a little bit of overlap between this morning's sermon and tonight's, but when we get to those overlapping subjects, I won't belabor those points too long. And the good people in your sound booth back there are going to help me with the screen tonight because it's very simple, and then they can just do it, and we'll move right along. And uh, I don't have to stand here and tell you, tell you it's not working. It's not working. <clears throat> Let's pray, and I'll read my text, and we'll get into the message. <coughs> Lord Jesus, thank you again for the privilege to open your precious word. What a, what a treasure we hold in our hands right now and on our laps uh, to open the word of God and hear a word from you. And I pray that once again you'll speak to us through the word. Thank you for the mission's heart of this church. And I pray that as they continue to serve here and as they continue to help others serve elsewhere, that you will multiply the impact, the gospel impact of Fostoria Baptist Church. Please use us in whatever way you see fit to advance your glory and advance your name and your gospel around the, around the world. I pray for your help now tonight as we make personal application to our own lives. Once again, looking at the Apostle Paul, I pray that you'll help us to learn and apply uh, the truth tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> First Timothy 1, <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me 
for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor, but I did it ignorantly, I'm sorry, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There are many stories throughout history of notable conversions. Some who were atheists came to Christ. Some who were God-haters came to Christ. I read a story once about Mel Trotter, and that may be a familiar name to some of you who was a, such, a, such an alcoholic and such bondage to alcohol that <clears throat> when his three-year-old daughter passed away and the crowd dispersed from the funeral, he went to the casket and took the shoes off of her feet to go sell them so he could get another drink. And God saved Mel Trotter, and he founded a, a rescue mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and was responsible through that ministry for seeing hundreds of men rescued from addictions and come to Christ and their lives changed and transformed. I have a conversion story. I hope you have a conversion story. When I was six years old in the spring of 1970, and don't spend the next five minutes trying to figure out how old I am, but spring of 1970, my dad took us to a revival meeting. My dad was a pastor for 20 years. He just celebrated this month 40 years in evangelism. (coughs) But we went to a revival meeting at Springdale Baptist Church in Boaz, Alabama. Anybody know where Boaz is? there's actually a church in Boaz years ago called Ruth Baptist Church. (laughs) And the the slogan on the side of the van, on the theme on the side of their church van said, gleaning in the fields of Boaz. I thought that was kind of funny, but anyway, Springdale Baptist Church. And and, uh, the preacher that night was Ray Duvall. And in North Alabama, preachers only have two gears. They have first gear and overdrive. And he went straight to overdrive as soon as he started uh, uh, reading his text. And he preached a sermon, a fiery sermon on the subject of hell. Now, I had heard the gospel many times by this time, but I was sitting on the back row with my mom. And when the preacher was finished, I didn't want to go forward because when somebody came forward to be saved in those churches, it was, it was such a commotion. Uh, all of the men would gather around you if you were a, a male. If all the, female, all the ladies would gather around you if you were a female. And they would all, <clears throat> they would all try to pray you through into the kingdom. You know what I'm talking about? You, know, you never experienced that? I mean, everybody would pray at the top of their voice. Uh, if you knelt here, there'd be 20 guys around you all praying as loud as they possibly can pray, as if God's kind of half deaf or something. And, and then after everybody would settle down for after a few minutes, and then somebody would tap you on the shoulder and say, do you have it yet? Do you have it yet? I didn't want to go through all that. That'd be too embarrassing. So I, I walked out the door. As soon as they prayed the dismissal, I went down the front, the front steps of the church and got in the back of my dad's 1965 Volkswagen, knelt in the floorboard and and put my head on the back seat and I asked Jesus to be my savior right there. That was a dramatic conversion story, you know. If you have a story, whether it's like mine or not like mine, but if you have a story that you someday, one day, bowed your head and trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, that is a miracle conversion story, isn't it? 
The Apostle Paul is probably the most notable conversion of all time. He was a persecutor of Christians who became a preacher of the gospel. He was an antagonist toward God's people who became an apostle of God, a hater of God who became perhaps the most influential Christian of history, and a model that we still look back to and talk about uh, in, in, the, in the Word of God. <coughs> he was a murderer who said uh, in Romans 9.3, For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ. And he was so passionate for the Lord that he wanted Christ to be magnified in his body, whether it be by life or by death. In the text we just read, we are looking at one of Paul's testimonies. It's found several times in, in uh, the epistles and in his writings throughout the scripture, uh, sharing with others how God saved him and transformed his life. And I don't think anybody would argue with me tonight that Paul became a mission-focused believer. Because remember what we've talked about all week long. God is on a mission to reveal his glory and extend his grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. And Paul was saved and got on mission with God and lived the rest of his life on mission. So we kind of have a choice. If God is on a mission and he saved us and brought us into his kingdom and into his family, we have a choice whether or not to get on mission with him. And if we do, I want us to use Paul's testimony tonight as a pattern for what our life should look like as well. If this is an example of one on mission, then let's examine our own hearts tonight and our own lives and see how we match up. Very simple outline. <clears throat> if you're taking notes, I'm just going to give you six. That's four. I'm going to give you six words tonight. Six words to write down. Are you ready for them? Look at me in verse number 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's stop right there and let's talk about the word gratitude. The word gratitude. <clears throat> Paul was, was keenly aware that Jesus alone was responsible for where he was at this time. See, Paul wasn't looking for God, was he? Paul was looking to despise God and the people of God and destroy the churches of God. And, God, and Paul wasn't looking for God, but, but God came looking for Paul. In Acts chapter 9, he was struck down on the Damascus Road, and Paul knew that. I am where I am by the grace of God, he said. We'll get back to that in a little while. But it was the Lord Jesus Christ who struck him down on that Damascus road and saved him and changed his life. And Paul often, frequently expressed the deep gratitude of his heart for what Jesus had done for him. Now, preacher, this is kind of strange. And we're coming toward Thanksgiving and we're going to talk about giving thanks and having grateful hearts. What does this have to do with missions? I want to submit to you that gratitude is the foundation of a proper spiritual life. It is a foundational attitude. A person without gratitude is, is often easily recognized, aren't they? But Paul was, Paul was anchored and guided by this deep sense of gratitude that permeated his heart. It permeated his life. <clears throat> you know that gratitude affects your perspective. You can find two people going through the same trials of life, the same heartaches and sorrows, and one person says, it's okay, God knows, we'll get through it, God takes care of us. And the other person just gripes all the way through it and complains at every turn. The difference is a lack of gratitude. Gratitude affects your personality. We all know people who are, who are sharp-tongued, maybe. 
They're rude in their spirit. They're, they're sharp in their spirit because of a lack of gratitude. And, and we recognize that. So gratitude also, or the lack thereof, affects other people's perception of you. Have you ever said about someone, and I've known quite a few people like this <coughs> in my life. I've said this several times. He's such a gracious person, or she's such a gracious lady. The root of that word is gratitude. It, it's, it's a foundational attitude. Adrian Rogers said, ungrateful people are unhappy people. Have you ever heard somebody say when they complain about something and you remind them? We've all done this. They complain about something and we remind them, you know, you, know, you should be grateful that, and you try to give the positive side of it, and there, here's what you hear back. Well, of course I'm grateful. Right? It, it just, it just it's, it's a poison for your spirit. It makes you sour and bitter and edgy. Bob Jones Sr. said, when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. I believe the words thank you and the feeling of thanks is a doorway into a proper focus and perspective. It is a doorway into a life focused on God and what he's doing and not focused on us and what we want. There's got to be this ever-present sense of a grateful heart acknowledging God. In Colossians 2.7, Paul said, Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. It ought to be an abundant emotion in our spirit. I am so grateful to God. In Colossians 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, by the which ye are also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. And our lives will not be mission-focused lives if we don't happily acknowledge Jesus. And thank you, Lord, falling from our lips maybe more than any other phrase that people hear from us. See, why is this so important? Well, I'm trying to express it's the foundation of of a proper spiritual life. But listen, if you don't have this feeling of gratitude, it it doesn't permeate your heart, your mind, your spirit. Why would you talk about Jesus? This 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 is letting what God has done for us get so ingrained and interwoven into the fabric of our lives that it's really a part of who we are and what we do. Because what Jesus did for me is the most important and most blessed gift I have ever received in my life. And I want to tell you about it. If that feeling gratitude isn't there, you won't talk about him. You won't feel compelled, compelled to share him. Uh, and, and, then, and then this is another reason this gratitude is so important. Because a grateful, uh, a true gratitude in the heart always translates into a life offered to God. This doesn't make sense right here. Lord, I want to thank you for saving me. I know you paid for my sins. I know I was on my way to hell. And I thank you for the free gift of salvation. Now leave me alone while I go live my life. That, doesn't, that don't even go together, does it? But thank you for saving me. I, I, I'm grateful for the gift of salvation. I know that you've put into my soul an eternal existence and I'll never die. I'm forgiven of my sins. I thank you for what you've done for me. How may I serve you? How may I return this life to you that you have so graciously redeemed? If you want to live a mission-focused life, it's got to be built on this foundation of gratitude. Word number two (coughs) is the word gospel. Look at verse 11, which we did not read. 
But I want to read it to you now. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul knew that God had given him more than just a free ticket to heaven. But he had enlisted him on a mission. He knew that the mission of God to reveal his glory and extend his grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue would be carried out by the ordained plan of God. It would be carried out by those he redeems. He redeemed me. He wants to redeem others. And how will that message be spread so they can be redeemed? It has to be through me. And Paul became a a gospel-focused believer, a gospel-focused Christian. He had a passion for the gospel. In Philippians 1.5, he spoke of our fellowship in the gospel. In verse 12, the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 17, the defense of the gospel. In verse 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Romans 15.20, yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. He lived it, ate it, slept it, breathed it, the gospel, it consumed him. And can I ask you, what message on earth is more important than the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ? We are saved for the mission of God. It's a command given to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, I quoted from on, on Thursday night. It is a ministry given to us. It is a word entrusted to us. And as Paul said in this text, which was committed to my trust. It is a personal responsibility. And hence the message this morning on the passions of the church. But we can't just say, listen carefully to this. We can't just say, I'm glad I go to a gospel-focused church. We need to be gospel-focused believers. We can't just say, I'm glad I go to a missions-hearted church. We've got to be mission-hearted believers. It is a personal responsibility. And you know there were many times when Paul stood alone. With no one around him. In, in uh, First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy chapter 4, <clears throat> Paul is describing when he stood before, uh, when he stood before Caesar, giving the defense of his own ministry, explaining who he was and what he was and why he was so devoted to the preaching of the gospel. <clears throat> and here's what he said: At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Paul had the courage to stand alone. So listen, if, if you're the only one in the church that is gospel-focused, and you're the only one in the church that cares about the people of this community and the people of the world, I know you're not going to be the only one, but if you were, you've got to stand for the gospel's sake. It's a personal responsibility. After he said, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me, the very next verse he said, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And then Paul gives us this powerful admonition in Philippians 1.27 when he said, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. I wish, I wish we had time to study that out tonight. I would challenge you to study that verse very, very thoroughly because that verse lays upon us the responsibility of living worthy of the gospel we have received. And and the life lived that is worthy of the gospel received is a life busy proclaiming that gospel for others. Living as as in a way that it becomes the gospel, it makes the gospel look good, that God didn't redeem me and, and not get his money's worth. Can I phrase it that way? 
Have you ever made a purchase for, on something and, and it turned out to be a bad deal? And you wish you could have your money back because it was a bad product or you made a bad choice and you bought it at the wrong time? If God went to the trouble to die for you and redeem your soul, he ought to get the most out of you, your focus, my focus on his gospel for the whole world. I've got to live with this gratitude for what God has done to me, done, done for me, <clears throat> and I've got to accept this trust of the gospel. And I want to say it this boldly, if you're not in step with the mission of God, then you're not in step with God at all. God doesn't exist to make our lives comfortable. God didn't save you to make your life comfortable. God saved you to make his mission or give his mission greater impact and greater power around the world. So don't be deceived into thinking that we're following Jesus if all we do is, is sit on the sidelines and we ride the bench with no involvement in the mission of God, no part in anything that does anything to bring people into the kingdom of God. The whole purpose of my receiving this glorious gospel was that I was enlisted to be a proclaimer of the gospel. So if you want to live a mission-focused life, it's got to be built on this foundation of gratitude. Number two, it's got to be a gospel-focused life. Number three, if you're OCD and you like alliterated outlines, I'm about to mess that up for you, okay? I'm sorry. But let's talk about the word potential. <clears throat> Look with me, please, at verse 12 again. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. The potential of a life. When I, use, when I say that phrase, who do you think of? The potential of a life. Notice what Paul says here. Let me point out a couple of words in this verse. It says that he counted me faithful. <clears throat> that is an accounting term. And it, and it means that he went ahead and put me in the credit column. That's what Paul is really saying here. In my college years, <clears throat> I worked at a, a day's in, third shift. And part of my job every night was to balance the books. And that was before it was on computers, so it was on ledger pages. I think they were like four feet long and three feet high. And there were entries made on those ledgers. And, and for every entry on that ledger that was a debit, there had to be a corresponding entry on that ledger that was a credit so that it balanced out to zero. And here's what Paul is saying. I lived a life of, of and we'll come back to this in a moment, but I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, and there were a whole lot of debits on my life. But God just went ahead when he saved me, and he put me in the credit column. He reckoned, listen to this, this is a powerful word too, I like it, it's a southern word. He reckoned that I would be as fervent in service for him as I was in persecution against him. And then the verse says, he counted me faithful. He counted me faithful. That word means trustworthy. Now think about that. Paul had to put faith in Jesus to be saved. But to save Paul, God put faith in Paul. He counted Paul to be a faithful man. He knew that this fervency he had in his hatred for God, once his heart was turned, once his life was converted, he would give that same fervency for God and for the work of God. When Andrew brought Simon Peter to Jesus, here's what, here's what Jesus said to him. He said, Thou art Simon, but thou shalt be called Cephas. Jesus was saying, essentially, I know who you are, and I know who you're going to become. Do you remember when, when Jesus uh, spoke to Peter in, in Luke chapter 22, and he said, 
um, he said, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, oh, no, no, I'll, I'll follow you all the way to death. The devil's desire to have you to be sift you as wheat. Jesus told him, no, I'll follow you all the way to death. He said, no, you're going to deny me three times. Who knew Peter's heart, Jesus or Peter? Jesus knew his heart, didn't he? And, and, and then he said, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And Jesus knew where Peter was headed. He, Jesus knew the guy would stand up someday and preach and 3,000 people get saved. God, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And God can see further into the future than we can see, right? What an honor and what a privilege for God to save us and enlist us to be part of His mission. His mission. We're even called co-laborers with Jesus Christ. So when I say the potential of a life, who do you think of? Is this Caden right over here? Caden, would you come up here and help me, please? And, and um, okay. Come up here <coughs> real quick. Your dad said... He'd pay you 20 bucks if you'd help me out. <laughs> Caden, how old are you? Eight. I had to think about it for a minute. I'm going to make two assumptions, and you can tell me later if I was wrong, but when I said the potential of a life, I'm going to assume you thought about someone else, not yourself. And then I'm going to assume you thought of somebody young. Because it's really easy for us to look at a life like this and say, look at the potential of this young life, isn't it? And can I just say it? There is no limit to what God could do with this young man right here. He, he, has, he has all of his life ahead of him. And, and listen to this. He doesn't carry a lot of baggage and wounds and sorrows. And he's growing up in a preacher's home, so that's a few strikes against him. <clears throat> but we look at this young life and say, look, he's, he's young, he's innocent. He's, he's got no baggage he's carrying. He hasn't been through any deep trials or heartaches. And there's no limit what God could do with this young life. Isn't that true? I know we don't agree with the ecumenical philosophy and all that stuff about Billy Graham, but, but you know Billy Graham was probably responsible for preaching the gospel to more people than any other man who's ever lived on the earth. This guy could preach the gospel to more people than Billy Graham. This guy could become someone used by God in such magnificent, wonderful ways that we would all stand in awe. But I have a couple of questions. Why, when I say the potential of a life, do we think about someone else? And why do we think about somebody young? And, and I've already answered that in part. Well, he, he don't have any big things he's dealing with. And, and you know, he's being taught the Bible at a young age. And as he grows up, he'll be able to overcome those things in his life. And even the tough times he goes through, God will use in his life to produce the life God wants him to live, right? Well, if that's true for him, why isn't it true for me? Why can't God use what, he's already, what, what I've already been through to shape and refine me? And what about the potential that God knows I have? And what about the faith God put in me when he saved me? Why can't I overcome some of those things? Why can't I work some, through some of those things? And why can't God use me? And if God stood there and knew Peter better than Peter knew himself, why can't I accept the fact that God knows me better than I know myself? And I have to stop telling God what he can't do with my life. 
Thank you, buddy. Good job. 20 bucks. Ask him for it. <clears throat> Can I trust God to overcome the weaknesses of my life? You know, Moses stood at the burning bush being called to go back to Pharaoh and deliver the people of Israel, and he, and he, and he expressed five doubts. I don't like to call them excuses. He expressed five doubts about his own ability to do what God's calling him to do. Well, they won't believe me, and who will I tell them sent me, and I can't talk plain. And he had five different excuses, and God took the time to go through those and answer those because God knew Moses better than Moses knew himself. Why is he limited in my life? Why is, why is the mission of God limited in my life because I have a few scars and I carry some baggage and, and I wish there were some things I hadn't been through? Can I trust that God can work through those things and make me what he wants me to be? See, this is, this is a reflective for Paul and it's a retrospective, but it's also instructive for us that God is putting faith in me. He saved me. He commissioned me. He has a work for me to do. He has a work to do through me. And I have potential for the kingdom, whether I'm eight years old or 58 or 68 years old or 78 years old. God's still working in my life to reveal his glory and extend his grace to every kindred, tribe, and tongue. You know, God is always at work, He's always present, He never takes a day off. He rested on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he finished the creative work. But he doesn't leave my life ever. He said it in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And wherever I am in my life, God is still working on me to make me what I ought to be. You know, it's easy for us to look back at our lives and see the sovereign hand of God, isn't it? If you've been saved very long, you can look back and see how God directed your life here and pointed you in this direction, and, and led you this way by His will, and you, you had a friend who led you to Christ, or you had a pastor who taught you the Bible, you had someone who, who influenced you for God, and you chose this place, and you went to this place, and you can just see that, you can just trace the hand of God directing you. And as my dad would say, if you are saved and you can't see that, you're blind in one eye and you can't see out of the other one. <laughs> right? We can all do that. And then if, if we embrace the sovereignty of God, we can look to the future and know God's got everything under control. He hasn't lost control of this world. He hasn't ceded his authority in anybody. So he was in control back there, and he's going to be in control out here. What's really hard for us is to translate that to what he's doing in my life right now. What's going on in my life right now, you don't understand. What I've been through is so tough, I just can't get involved in the mission of God like I wish I, like I, wish I could and like I want to. Can't we, can't we look at the present and see what God's doing today? And can't we look at the future and trust that he will develop us into someone who is an effective servant on the mission of God? That requires us to be surrendered to his will and surrendered to his leading, allowing him to make us today into what his vision is for our future. My salvation, your salvation was not the glorious end of a story of deliverance. But it was the glorious beginning of a journey with God on a life on mission, a life he wants to use. If you want to live a mission-focused life, here's what this point requires of us. Got to be built on gratitude. It's got to be gospel-focused. And number three, you've got to yield your potential to God. You've got to stop giving God conditions. You've got to stop, stop telling God what you can't do or what you won't do. You know, it's really not a good idea to tell God what you won't do, right? You know that? 
You know what I've been praying lately? Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go except Hawaii. I'm not going to Hawaii. Don't tell me. Don't send me. It hasn't worked yet, okay? But if you want a mission-focused life, you got to say, this life is yours. Whatever you want with it, you can do. And wherever you want to send it, you can send it. You got to yield yourself to God. Number four, grace. The word grace, look at verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. The word abundant means over and above, superfluous or superfluous. I'm sorry, I probably pronounced that wrong. But he's, he didn't just say it was superfluous. He said it was exceeding abundant. It's just the grace here is just absolutely overwhelming to me. And look how he describes himself in verse 13. He said, who was before a blasphemer? That's the same word that's used in 2 Timothy 3 to describe the rampant evil that's taking place characterizing the last days. And it means to speak loudly and openly against God and his people. It's happening all around the world, isn't it? I think when Paul stood and they laid their coats at the feet of a young man whose name was Saul at the stoning of Stephen, I don't think he stood there silently. I think he loudly and openly blasphemed against God and this man here who deserved to die because he was promoting the gospel. He used the word persecutor here. That means he actively pursued. He went out of his way to attack and destroy the church. In Acts 8.3, it says he made havoc of the church. In Acts 9.1, he breathed out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. In Acts 22.4, he said, I persecuted this way unto the death. In Galatians 1.13, he said, beyond measure, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. That means I attacked it with the intent of destroying it. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And then he says, and this is the worst one, injurious. You know what that word means? It means one who does wrong to others simply because it brings them pleasure. Paul said, I wasn't just blasphemous and a persecutor. I enjoyed what I was doing. It brought me pleasure to destroy the work of God and the people of God. I don't think Paul was proud of this past. Even when he talks about it in Philippians chapter 3, you don't get any idea that Paul was proud of what he used to be. And I've heard salvation testimonies in the past where the, the, the gory details of the past were almost glorified in kind of a way. But I think Paul is weeping tears of regret when he writes these words. Because he says in verse 14, after I was and I was and I was, he said, but God's grace... Oh my, God's grace. And he never got over it. He never got past it. You know, the word, the word mercy has been defined as not receiving what we deserve. God's mercy, he withholds judgment. And in God's grace, he gives us what we don't deserve. And I think Paul's emotions are starting to get hold of him here. And he says, I thank God who counted me faithful and he put me in the ministry. And here's what I was, but his grace, his grace, his grace. He never got over it. If you want to live a mission-focused life, and this, I know this goes back to point number one with the word gratitude. It's the same root. But you've got to be grace-aware and grace-consumed, knowing that you're who you are and, and you're where you are by the grace of God. Word number five, look at verse 16. <clears throat> this is where we got the title of the message. He says, 
Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe. You know what Paul realized? He realized there were people coming after him that would believe on Jesus. He, he realized even, even as a young believer, uh, as a matter of fact, Ananias was sent to minister to Saul and, and he said, Ananias, you go tell him how great things he must suffer for my sake and he's going to speak before kings and before Gentiles. Paul knew as a very, very young believer that God wanted to use his life to proclaim the gospel. And so he calls himself a pattern here. Now, remember, this isn't just Paul's reflection. This is instruction for us. Every saved person in this room is a trophy of God's grace, and every saved person in this room is a pattern for someone else to observe. This goes back to my other point on potential as well. Don't say, well, I'm not a pattern. I just come to church, and I just sit here and listen, and I go home. I don't hold an office. I'm not a deacon. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I don't have any position in the church. I want you to hear this statement. There is someone who needs to observe your life, the life of someone who's been changed by the grace of God, and the life of one who is on mission with God to help make that message known to those who are still waiting for the gospel, and somebody's watching your life. So what do you have to do? If you want to live a mission-focused life, you've got to allow God to use your influence. Stop denying the value of your life. Stop denying the potential impact of your life and let God use you to help bring other people to Christ. Word number six from verse 17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and, say the next word with me, glory forever and ever. Verse 17 gives us the real reason for this testimony. Listen to this. This testimony we just went through is not to make us look at Paul and think highly of him. This testimony is to help us look at God and think highly of him. It goes back to the first point of this morning. Passion for God is what starts this whole thing. All of nature shouts to God. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. And I want to tell you how passionate God is for his own glory. God is so passionate for his own glory that he chose to glorify himself by bringing you back into his family. And do you know that what glorifies God more than any other one act that takes place in the world today is when a life created in the image of God is reconciled to the family of God. God chose to glorify himself by saving us. Wow. God chose to glorify himself by using us to help bring others into that family. So he's glorified by all. And I've said it this week in two or three different ways, but I think one way I said it is the tragedy of the unreached world is that our God is not being glorified by those who don't know him as personal Savior. He's worthy of their honor and their glory. And I can see Paul here in this text overcome with emotion and putting down his quill perhaps and raising his hands in the air and remembering I was a blasphemer and a persecutor. I hated God, but his grace turned me around. And I thank him for putting me into the ministry. And I don't want you to look at Paul. I don't want you to look at 
my life, I want you to look at the God who did this. I want you to look at the God I serve. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you want to live a mission-focused life, number six, you've got to be passionate for God's glory. Can we say to God tonight, I want you to be glorified through my life. I want you to be magnified, whether it be by life or by death, as Paul said. In Philippians 2.21, Paul is trying to find someone to send to Philippi, and he sends Timothy. And, and, and his assessment of everyone around him was, he said, for all seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ. There's a large percentage of the Christian population that are just consumed in our own little world, in our own little thing, and we're not consumed with the mission of God. They seek their own, Paul said, and not the things which are Jesus Christ. But back in Philippians 1.21, I've already quoted, he said, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Can we all sincerely pray tonight, God, I want you to be glorified through my life. I'm grateful. I want to be gospel-focused. I want to yield my potential to you and let you use me however you see fit. Thank you for your grace. Help me to bring others to you through the pattern of my own life and help me to glorify you in all that I do. Lord Jesus, thank you for the powerful example again of the Apostle Paul. May these thoughts challenge us so deeply tonight that our lives are deeply affected and changed. In Jesus' name.